I don't think I've ever been lectured more than I was over this weekend in response to a column explaining why we're not endorsing on the abortion amendment, issue one. I explained we're not endorsing because people have largely made up their minds and all sorts of people wrote me to lecture me on why that's wrong and why I should endorse the way they believe, which means they made up their minds and they pretty much proved our point. We're not endorsing on issue one. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Leila Tassi, and Laura Johnston. And I can't wait till this election's over. I am so tired of the venom in every abortion email I get. It was just a miserable weekend of people telling me I'm out of my mind and, you know, I'm either a baby killer or I hate women. It's just, wow. Wow. Yeah, it's just bad. Um, and it, it was fascinating because they're saying you do influence minds, you do influence votes, not mine, but other people's. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> get out of my face. One of the big questions this election season has been about how you can have THC for marijuana in your system for weeks without the high you initially get from using marijuana. Marijuana is issue two on the ballot. Reporter Gretchen Kuda Crowen attempted to answer. Lisa, what is the answer? Yeah, and I thought I knew it all, but I actually learned a few new things from this article. So we do know that sobriety tests for marijuana are limited because everyone metabolizes THC differently. It depends on how old you are, how much body fat you have, your gender, your weight, and your physical condition. And current blood tests only indicate if the user has done marijuana in the last several days or weeks, not whether they're under the influence at that particular time. So THC, or tetrahydrocannabinol is the psychoactive component of marijuana. It stays in the fat cells in the body. If you're a frequent user like me, it increases the level of THC that's stored in your body. People test positive longer if they're frequent smokers. Also, if you have a high body fat content, or you're older, you will test positive longer than younger people. And if you're sedentary, you test positive for marijuana longer than people who are athletes or active. So the rule of thumb is that you will test positive about several days to one week after a single use of marijuana. Now, frequent users, that can be three weeks to a month that it stays, you know, and you have a positive test. But the THC effects do dissipate about four afters after smoking or vaping. So if you're just smoking or vaping, you'll feel the effects for about four hours. And it takes about 12 hours for edibles to dissipate from your system after use. Yeah, th this was a story that was much needed. It, it's one of the things readers kept asking about. It's really the last unanswered question heading into the election. I, I do hope because there are differences in what is in the bloodstream that will end up with a test that police can quickly give to see, do you have the intoxicating form of the molecules in your body or is the test coming up with the stuff that's no longer intoxicating? Seems like an advanced society such as ours should be able to come up with that. And as more states legalize marijuana, you got to think that they will. And we did talk with Lieutenant Nathan Dennis with the Ohio Highway Patrol, and he was talking about, you know, officers, if issue two does pass, he says officers will no longer arrest for simple possession. But he says, we've been arresting impaired drivers for years. That's not going to change at all. And he said roadside testing generally includes like looking for dilated pupils, red bloodshot eyes, 
but he says those who test positive are not necessarily charged with a crime. He says officers do know that not everyone who tests positive is impaired. And he says they're looking for current impairment. And that's always the way it's been. And that's never going to change. Good stuff from Gretchen. It's on Cleveland.com and you're listening to Today in Ohio. I've often said that the reporters that have been in the business for 40 years or more and are still doing it are the best that ever were. And Julie Washington proved that again this weekend with a story that had to have people shedding many a tear. Layla, what was this gut-wrenching piece that we published on Cleveland.com and in the Plain Dealer Sunday? This uh, Julie wrote just a beautiful profile of Ted Stevens. He's the staff medical photographer at Akron Children's Hospital, whose work ranges from documenting Legos that were removed from a kid's stomach in the emergency room to capturing fun moments with children at hospital events to post on the on the hospital's website. But among his true specialties is bereavement photography. Stevens is often invited to the bedside of a dying child to capture really beautiful photos of this child's final moments of life. Stevens is an Akron native who first became interested in medical photography when he was a student at the Rochester Institute of Technology, and he's been at Akron Children's Hospital since 1993. He's part of the hospital's 25-person pediatric palliative care team which includes chaplains, child life specialists, and social workers. And about twice a month, the bereavement team alerts Stevens that he's needed at the bedside of a dying child or at a patient's home to document the child surrounded by grandparents and siblings and family. And the families that spoke spoke to Julie said that those images become cherished mementos that often they're prominently displayed throughout the house. And they say that Stevens is so delicate in his approach to those really tender moments. He really blends into the background without disrupting the family. And while most other hospitals would direct families to certain photo studios for these kinds of services, Stevens offers these photos for free. And when he gives them to the family, he will tell them, you don't ever have to look at these if it's too painful, but they're here for you. It's a beautiful story. Please check it out on cleveland.com. The photos are haunting. I mean, oh, I, yeah, as you read this story, I mean, it's painful to read because you're just, it's tragedy compounded. And this guy is just doing an angel's work in providing parents with these photos. I imagine most people do look at them and do come back to them. And it's that part of the story that you talked about where he's saying, look, look, let me take them. Just just put him away if this is too hard for you. Uh, he knows what he's doing, but wow, what a story. Yeah. And I loved his missions to Haiti, too. And that picture of the one Haitian girl with the heart defect that we had on the front page was just a haunting photo. It was a few weeks before she died. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's just, and, and Julie told this story with such sensitivity. Uh, it's just beautiful, beautiful piece. Very proud to have that on the front of the dealer on Sunday. Yeah, I imagine. I mean, no doubt that that this particular aspect of his job is so painful. He said in the story that he will often bump into people in the community who remember that he was the photographer who gifted them with these beautiful images of their their child's final moments, and he leaves those conversations in tears. But I feel like that alone is proof of the meaning of his work. He gets to meet that important need for those families. He recognizes that his personal qualities his eye for finding beauty despite the pain makes him uniquely qualified to do that work. 
Well, we've talked a lot this year about Kindland and doing acts of kindness. Every day this guy shows up for his job, he is doing acts of kindness. Great stuff. Really hats off to Julie for putting this one together. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A guy who built a fortune based on phony checks and later saw the government sell his exotic car collection for more than 40 million big ones finally comes to justice at a sentencing this week. Laura, what's his story is told by reporter Adam Faris. I would not have been able to define check kiting before I read Adam's story, but it's basically this illegal high stakes shell game where you shuffle money from account to account to make it appear that you have more money than you actually do. And it depends on the lag time between transfers to kind of fool you into thinking that this is this is a huge scope of money. This isn't just like bouncing one check to, you know, for a few dollars. This is um, we're talking about. 250 classic cars that the Jeep Con bought. And that's in addition to a bunch of mansions, a bunch of country club memberships, and all cor- kinds of stuff. He faces it, 10. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. He faces 10 to 12 years in prison this week when he goes in front of District Judge Pamela Barker. He did plead guilty in January and he left three banks on the hooks for, for about $150 million. Businesses. And he served a lot of small businesses, a lot of athletic teams, um, some dioceses and nonprofits. They were out $30 million. So a trustee said this may be the largest and longest running check kiting scheme in U.S. history. It's guaranteed to end this way. As we've often said about Ponzi schemes and other investment schemes and things like this, I wonder if these guys, they're adrenaline junkies because you know that it ends with you in prison. That's the only way it can end. You can't continue this because the money's not real. Eventually it collapses. You lose everything. You go away for years. Why why do it? It must be for the rush of getting away with it. Well, you get away with it one time, right? And then you get away with it again. And this ramped up over the years. I mean, think about it. This lasted 10 years. You wouldn't think that you could be doing this this long. And the company did real work. This is Interlogic outsourcing. It had 6,000 clients in all 50 states, some in Canada. And as the company grew, he stole more and more money. He had his his employees depositing very specific amounts of money every day in this bank. And he sent them a spreadsheet every day. So, I mean, he was doing a lot of work to make this work. Um, they were 200 checks or wire transfers every day, dumping bags of checks at Lake City Bank, sometimes topping $100 million in a single day. That's just mind-boggling. You got to wonder if all those all those years, you're just under stress because it could all come crashing down. Yeah. And when the feds finally show up to take you away, if all of a sudden the stress evaporates because you're no longer having to wheel and deal. It's a massive fraud scheme. Well, but his attorneys attur- attur- are saying he's really a great guy. He donated yeah. all this time and money to dozens of charities. He had more than a hundred people write letters on his behalf. I don't know how you do that when he stole all this money from people so he could, you, you mentioned the cars. We're talking about a DeLorean from Back to the Future. He owned Wayne Gretzky's car. He had race cars from NASCAR greats like Jeff Gordon and Dale Earnhardt. Junior, he had three airplane hangers, 10 boats, eight airplanes, a 64-foot yacht that came with a 12-foot motorboat. I mean, and that was at Catawba Island Club in Port Clinton. So you can't yeah. talk about him like he's a great guy. No. The 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 way he's left institutions 
out millions and millions of dollars. He's a scumbag. He needs to go away for a long time. This is a deliberate act to defraud at a high level and then live the high life during the whole time. Now the price comes due. We'll see what he gets. You're listening to Today in Ohio. One of the big hopes for reducing climate change is clustering people's homes near transit centers. How's that going in Cuyahoga County, Lisa? Well, the Cuyahoga County Planning Commission is just about done with a year-long study that's focusing on rezoning 85 square miles of land along 22 commercial corridors in both Cleveland and 25 surrounding suburbs. They want to rezone these areas for dense, walkable development along major transit routes. It's called transit-oriented zoning. So um, this calls for like multi-story buildings close to sidewalks with street-level storefronts instead of the old setbacks with huge parking lots in front. So examples that they're using of transit-oriented development include the intro and the church and state apartments in Ohio City and the ascent top of the hill apartments in Cleveland Heights. So Garfield Heights is wanting to get in on this. They have a 1950s era Turneytown shopping center, and that's going to be the test case. So the city completed a master plan with county planners, but they have these old zoning codes that don't allow for mixed use development. So they've got to update their old zoning codes and they have to rezone about two and a quarter miles of Turney Road from Ella Avenue to Highway 480. And they hope to spur buyers of the Turneytown Shopping Center. It was just recently changed hands and they want to get them to invest in a bold makeover. And they're kind of looking at the Van Aken district as their example. So, you know, we used to go to Van Aken when I was a kid. That's where all our stores were. And it had this huge parking lot with this low one-story, you know, curve of buildings. And if you go to Van Aken District today, you can see it's really beautiful. It's got streets and it's got places to sit. And so that's what they're looking at as their kind of their example for what they want to do in Garfield Heights. I get it with Van Aken because there is an RTA station there. I don't get how you say the ascent project in Cleveland Heights is transit oriented. I mean, you got to go down a long Cedar Hill with traffic flying past you to get to transit. I think that's a bit bogus. There's a bus station out front, I guess. There is. And, you know, Steve Litt mentioned it in his article. And, you know, a lot of people don't like that development, me included. But yeah, I just calling it transit oriented, I think, is a reach. But it's interesting what they're trying to do out in Garfield and a salute to them for trying You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa mentioned in the first marijuana discussion, she learned things she didn't know. This Laura Hancock story we're about to talk about taught me all sorts of stuff I didn't know. What are the criminal justice reform issues involving marijuana that are not addressed by issue two on the ballot next week, Layla? This was a great story. It really was. Laura tells us that every state that has legalized adult use marijuana since 2018 has paired criminal justice reform with it. And, and indeed, among the talking points for Ohio's initiated statutes is the fact that it will end arrests, court dates, jail sentences, and fines for low-level marijuana possession and, and cultivation of it. But what about folks who are already serving time or suffering the consequences of having these charges on their records? Advocates for Issue 2 say that once it passes, lawmakers should do the right thing and amend the law to include reforms that would provide for expungements of low-level marijuana crimes or releasing people from jail or prison who have been convicted of low-level cannabis offenses. For these people, 
the so-called war on drugs has cost them jobs and educational opportunities and student loans. And incarceration, of course, can destroy families. Some people lost their kids to the system during their incarceration. And, and that disproportionately affects the Black community. Laura points out in her story that the racial disparity and the rate of arrest for marijuana possession is great. Black people are on average 3.4 times as likely as white people to be arrested in Ohio for marijuana possession. And that rate varies by community. For, in, it, for example, in Cuyahoga County, Black people are 1.4 times as likely as white people to be arrested. But in Medina, Black residents are 25.2 times as likely when you look at arrests per 100,000 people. So the advocates are saying it's not enough just to legalize marijuana. You have to seek to undo the damage and racial injustices that have been committed by so many years of its criminalization. And those behind issue two say they would have liked to include those reforms in the ballot language, but Ohio is really restrictive. They, they require that proposals for initiated statutes be focused on a single issue. Yeah, and they're going to count on our legislature, our legislature to fix <laughs> right. this. You really think Matt Huffman's going to stand up and say, yeah, let's let's help all the black people that were convicted of these crimes get out of jail. The one thing that he that it seemed to say in this story, this the, the perp, there's a goal of setting aside some of the revenue to help minorities get into the marijuana business. That's the thing that he wants to undo, apparently, is what the story said. Right. Yeah, that's right. But it's 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 interesting how how I mean, if you look at how different how states have handled this, it, it is there. There are lots of in Michigan, for example, they, they did not include in their law um, any any reforms, but they did uh, later pass an automatic expungement of crimes for for, you know, quarter of a million people who were convicted of marijuana offenses. So of course, Michigan is is a lot more left-leaning than Ohio. Uh, so I, I don't see that we're we're going to end up in that, that same position. I do not see our legislature, <laughs> which is gerrymandered beyond belief, led by people that are not public meaning like Matt Huffman doing anything to help out here. I think they'll let this sit. And, and if anything, they're going to try and figure out how much of this statute can we undo without incurring the wrath of the voters who are passing it? This will pass big next Tuesday, and they will immediately set about trying to weaken it because they don't represent Ohio. They represent this tiny fringe of their party, and it comes up over and over again. Good story by Laura. Check it out. You're listening to Today in Ohio. High school football playoffs started over the weekend. Did the state's lawmakers follow through on their plan to limit what students could be charged to attend? Lisa. Yeah, it didn't take them long to introduce House Bill 311, which is sponsored by Jay Edwards from Athens and Justin Pizzuli from Scioto County. It requires student tickets for football playoff games be priced lower than adult tickets, although they already are, um, and they should pay the same price online and at the gate. It also requires that students be let in free if the event doesn't accept cash at the gate and there's no sellout. So Edwards, he says the Ohio High School Athletic Athletic Association should be ashamed of themselves, charging $15 at the gate for playoff games. He said many family members will miss games because of these outrageous costs. Um, OSHA says, you know, it's, he says it's only about the money for them. But OSHA spokesman Tim Stride said, 
previously to us that prices increased due to more security officers and more time for accounting and auditing needed because of the cash requirement. The current state budget requires high schools to accept cash at the gate. So, you know, Stride saying, well, we need more security around that. So um, they want, currently tickets are $9 for students online and $12 for adults. And then everyone pays 15 bucks at the gate. It's interesting how much micromanaging the legislature does on <laughs> populist issues. Although when this came up last time, I guess I was in the minority. You thought it's $15 a lot. And the overwhelming response was, that's ridiculous. It shouldn't be that much money. So it looks like the legislature is going along with what the people actually want this time and trying to keep the costs reasonable. Although it won't affect this year, right? You're getting gouged this year. Correct. Yeah, because playoffs, yeah, the bill is not passed yet, so it's not going to affect the playoffs this year. I wonder how crowded the games were with those high back-breaking prices. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland felt like it had some momentum on reducing lead paint not all that long ago, but now the program seems mired in quicksand. Layla, what is wrong? (laughs) So in 2019, Cleveland passed this law requiring landlords to make their properties lead safe in in hopes of preventing more kids from from getting poisoned. Landlords of rental homes built before 1978, when lead paint was banned, were required uh, in 2021 and 22 to certify their properties as, as lead safe. That usually means making sure that lead dust isn't getting into the living space by painting over all the old lead, sealing the hazard up, patching up cracks in walls. And old doors and windows are are a special problem because even if they're painted over, they wear and tear so quickly that that exposes the old paint. So you have to be recertified every few years. And the certification process requires landlords to, to get an initial clearance exam from a private inspection business. And that could, you know, be cost few hundred bucks or a thousand bucks. And certifications, like I said, have to be renewed. But while they they seem to be off to this really promising start with this program, compliance has really dropped off. Just 13% of properties representing about 28% of the city's rental units have gotten their initial lead safe certifications that were required in 2021 and 22. And now most of those are are failing to re-up their certifications. So Courtney Astolfi set out to figure out why, and she spoke with a number of landlords who requested anonymity for this story because, you know, well, they haven't been following the law here. And they shed a lot of light on what they see as problems with this program. In a nutshell, they say the Cleveland Lead Safe Coalition, which is supposed to be reimbursing landlords for the costs that they incur to make their properties lead safe, that they're really lagging in the reimbursement. Some of some of the landlords say like they they have to float this money for months and months and you know at a time before they ever see see the reimbursement. They also say that the testing itself is is flimsy. They all they all know that if you do a deep clean of your property, you will pass the inspection. That seems to be the going logic here. But lead can reemerge or it can blow in from a neighbor's property when the windows are open. And that, you know, you'll fail the next exam or or even after you've deep cleaned, you could fail the exam because of that hazard. They say that the structure of the program has kind of given rise to scammers too. Some inspectors out there advertise that they will guarantee that you'll pass the test if you pay them twice the going rate, stuff like that. <laughs> 
And they also say there are no consequences for noncompliance, so why bother, especially if they're not turning much of a profit on their rental unit as it is. Mm. This was, I thought, a really great analysis of where this program stands. Everyone check it out on cleveland.com. I, uh, in my previous life as a reporter in another state, did a lot of reporting on lead paint. And I've never understood Cleveland's move toward the encapsulation of it, where you paint over it and do things like that, because you're just kicking the can down the road. It's going to come back. You're going to be dealing with it again. And the only way to be sure is get it out. Either strip the paint away or tear out the woodwork and replace it, because that's largely where the lead paint's coming from. But this idea of just painting over it and hoping you're going to, every time you open and close a window, you wear it and you create lead dust. And I, I just, this doesn't seem like the right way to guarantee it for the long-term future. If you want future generations of kids to not have to deal with this, get the lead out. But lead is so pervasive, which means it would be just cost prohibitive. And I can't imagine how, how landlords could, could shoulder that cost. Assist it. I mean, look, we have all sorts of public money that goes to all sorts of things that are a waste. Think about the $66 million that the county council squandered on their stupid little projects, right? Put $66 million into getting the lead out of a bunch of houses. How many houses would that do? Well, right now we have a hundred million. That's it. The Lead Safe Coalition has a a bunch of of money uh, ready for reimbursing landlords, but this is the approach that they've apparently accepted which means that that people who are in our chairs 30 years from now will be having the same conversation it's just it's such an insidious problem they really need to get their hands around it i mean courtney writes in her story that last year more than 17 percent of of kids tested in cleveland were found to have elevated levels of lead in their blood Think of and the, you're dooming them because it creates intelligence problems, of course. it creates health problems. I mean, it's that's the thing. This is the best investment we could make as a community for the future of this community. And instead, we kick the can down the road. It, it's we're just this is sad. This is one of the saddest stories you'll read because it's failing. After all this effort, it's not working because of the way we're attacking it. Sorry, Laura had to drop off. She's having huge technical issues again. Not quite sure what it is, but we're going to end up short today because she's not here to talk about her stories. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for the missing Laura. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We'll return on Tuesday with another discussion of the news. 